Well, we are so blessed. Your singing today, it's really ministered to me and I'm blessed to hear the Mitchell kids sing and play guitar. The musical talent that we're seeing helps us to worship so much. And I think some of us even had a little dust in our eye on that It Is Well song. What a blessing it is to worship our Lord and sing good hymns, whether they're new or old, that teach theology, that teach the Bible, and speak to our soul. If you would open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written, this mountain peak of the New Testament with doctrine, and practical living taught by the Apostle Paul. Open here to Romans chapter 1. And we've been looking at Paul's teaching here. And he hasn't even gotten going. I mean, he's just doing the introduction to the letter. And there's so much here. There's so much richness. There's so much doctrine. There, there's so much love for Christ and love for the Lord here. And today we're looking at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. But I want to read the whole paragraph. We want to always set the verses in context and also see what's Paul's whole argument here. What is he trying to get across to them with the paragraph? And then I'll zero down on verses 9 and 10 today as we look at praying for the church, part 2, intercession and petition. So the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is Paul's prayer. He's talking about his prayer life. Prayer is of great interest to all who believe. Every believer should be interested in prayer, interested in actually praying, interested in learning more about prayer, and interested in seeing what an apostle like Paul would pray for. We often struggle with prayer. We often need help with our prayer life. We need to pray more and we need to pray godly prayers. And Paul gives us a great example and teaches us much about how to pray right here. Prayer is such an important part of our daily Christian walk. Here's what J.C. Ryle in the 1800s, a great preacher, said, The subject of prayer ought always to be interesting to Christians. Prayer is the very life breath of true Christianity. Here it is that religion begins. Here it flourishes. Here it decays. Prayer is one of the first evidences of conversion. Neglect of prayer is the sure road to a fall. To neglect prayer means that eventually we're going to stumble, we're going to fall in our Christian walk. Prayer here at our church, 
recognizes how desperate that we're in need of God to guide us, to equip us, to empower the church to accomplish its purpose. And it's the same for your private life as well. Prayer, it's essential. It's part of the Christian life. It's one of the greatest privileges a believer has in this life. Unbelievers don't have this privilege. They can't go to God and know that their prayers will be heard and answered if they're according to God's will. Prayer, both corporately and privately, is to seek God's face and seek God's guidance, His blessing, His power, His holiness. It's also for evangelism. It's also for spiritual growth and so much more. That's why John Calvin, the reformer, said it's the chief exercise of faith. The chief exercise of faith. How much faith do you have to have to pray to God and expect and hope that he will answer? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. Think about that. You're, You're communing with the holy God who created all things. Prayer is the center of all true personal godliness. So in Romans, uh, we have been looking at this prayer of Paul. And he's been writing out the things that he prays for with regards to the Roman church. And he's told us briefly about himself. In the first paragraph, he told us that he was a slave of Christ, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Then he goes into describing the gospel. He tells us that it's about Christ, that it's about Jesus, a person, fully God, fully man. And he just mentions that he's from the seed of David according to the flesh. That he's declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Then he told us it's through Christ that Paul and the apostles receive grace and apostleship. And what's their goal? What's Paul's goal in ministry? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. To bring us to Christ, yes. To bring us to faith, yes, through evangelism. But also to help us grow every day in that grace. As we obey as we trust, as we turn from our sins. And then in verse 7, 6 and 7, he just told us a bit about the Roman church. As he's speaking to them, he reminds them that they're called, that they're saints, that they have been divinely set apart by God for God's purposes in the world. So after telling us that, now he launches in in verses 8 through 15, the prayer life, part of his prayer life, not the whole thing. Obviously, he prayed for all the churches, but here he's praying For them specifically. He wants them to know ahead of time before he gets there that he has been praying for them. And we saw last week in verse 8 that he told them he's been thankful to God for them. Verse 8, the very first thing, he says, First, I thank you, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He gives thanks to God. And we looked last week at how we should be thankful for our church. How even though we're all a bunch of people who still sin, we're all imperfect, we ought to be thankful that God has put us here together. That God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ. That God has helped us so much through the preaching, through the prayers, through the singing, through everything that we do together. Well, Paul doesn't say second and third. He doesn't go on to list it out. But we are going to look today at the second and third thing that he mentions here in his prayer. And as you can tell by the title, it's intercession and petition. Paul gives thanks. The very first part of his prayer, he gives thanks to God, which we ought to do when we pray. And then he goes into these other two aspects, intercession and petition. So the first point that I want you to see in the text this morning is verse 9. We must pray on behalf of others, especially in our church. 
we have got to intercede for others. This is called intercessory prayer. Praying on behalf of others. That's what the word intercession means. To pray for someone else. Not yourself, but for others. We've got to intercede. Now, I spoke last week about Jesus as our mediator. Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. And later we'll see in Romans, in Romans 8, 26, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us as well. It says there, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we have Christ as our intercessor. We have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. And we're also called to intercede for one another. We're called to pray for one another. Not just to think of ourselves. Not just to think of our needs. But to pray for others. To be humble and pray that others would be blessed by God. So he starts off in verse 9 talking about this. And I'm going to skip the parenthetical here. He just says, for God is my witness. For God is my witness. As he starts to talk about how he intercedes for them, he wants them to know that as he has prayed, God is his witness to those prayers. As we pray today, God is the one who hears our prayers. God is the one who can testify that we have indeed prayed. Not as if we want to go around trying to prove to everyone that we've prayed for them. But Paul says, God is my witness. I have been with God. I've spent time with God. He's trying to assure them in the letter here that God who knows the secrets of his heart can back up his testimony. He doesn't know the Romans. He's never been there in person. He knows a few of them. They've not seen him pray for them. And they've got to trust what he's saying here. And he says, God's my witness. He's the one who can back me up. And this is very important. It's, a, it's an important part of Paul's introduction here. Because before he even gets to the doctrinal teaching, before he even gets to the practical living out of that doctrine, he wants them to know, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Have you ever been in that situation where you know it's going to be a, a tense meeting with somebody? You know that the truth you're going to present is not going to be received well? And if you would stop and pray for that person beforehand, even as you meet with them, start off with prayer. That will help so much. That will help so much. Because they know you're praying for them. And he wants them to know that they're loved. He wants them to know that they're cared for by Paul. Not by his being there all the time. He's not even come. He wants them to know that through his prayers, he cares for them. And now he puts in this parenthetical about the God that he's praying to. My God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his son. Now he's already told us that he's a, a preacher of the gospel, an apostle sent by Christ. But he's saying once again, he's reminding them that Paul serves God the Father. Who called Paul into saving faith and also called him into his apostolic ministry. Interestingly, the word serve here, latruo in Greek, means to serve in a religious duty. It means to serve in an act of worship. It's what we've been doing here this morning. We've been worshiping. We've been serving God with our hearts, our minds, our voices, our bodies, our soul. Everything that we are should be a part of worship. And Paul's saying when he goes out to preach the gospel, whether it's to unbelievers or believers here, as he's doing in the book of Romans, he is serving God. He is worshiping God through his service. And he says he does it with my spirit. My spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about his own spirit. All that he is. With all my heart, we might say today. Paul doesn't go about serving God half-heartedly. He doesn't say, you know, I'll just try to serve God a little bit. 
He says this with all my spirit, with all my heart. I take this gospel and I tell other people about it. And he says, it's the gospel, it's the good news of God's son. That's the message that Paul is taking out. How is he serving God? He's doing it through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, God's son. He's saying, look, we're sinners. And he's going to do this in the book of Romans. He's going to start off by saying, we are sinners. We are depraved. We can't come to God. We can't please God. In and of ourselves, God will just abandon us the more we sin unless he saves us. Chapter 3, he'll tell us that. But God, but God, he's gracious. He's merciful. He reaches out and he saves sinners. That's the good news. And not only that, but we continue to be made sanctified and holy throughout our Christian life, growing more and more to be like Christ. And then he goes into this doctrine of God's election and predestination in Romans. And then he goes into Israel and in their future. And then he goes into living out the gospel in your everyday life. What's the good news? Well, it's everything that Paul's going to talk about in Romans. Even the bad news? Yeah, you've got to get to the bad news before you can tell them the good news. People today don't think they're sinners. People today don't think they've done anything wrong. God's something that I add on top. I patch on to my already great life. God's there to bless me. But that's not what Paul's going to teach us in Romans. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're sinners. And we need a Savior. And it's through Christ alone, through faith alone, that we receive that. That's the message that Paul took to the world. That's what Paul's doing to serve God. And as he goes out proclaiming that word to both unbelievers and believers, he's doing a service to God. He's worshiping God. And he wants to remind them that all the time that he's doing that, he's praying for them. Paul, you're taking the gospel to all the known world on one side of the Roman Empire, and you're planning to go across through Rome to Spain, and you're praying for us? That's amazing. That's amazing. They must have thought when they read this letter. Now, Paul knows that this God that he serves is the one who witnesses to his prayer life. And so he says, the God that I take his gospel out, he witnesses, and my spirit, I pray all that I can for you. Do you remember what Jesus said about praying in your own heart in secret? Do you remember that? Matthew 6, verse 5. He says, when you pray, a good lesson on prayer here. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. These were men that everybody would have said, these are the most godly men around. Look at them out on the street corners praying. Look at how godly they appear. And he says, Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. In other words, the reward is to have people look at them. The reward in full is to have people see them and pat them on the back for it. But Jesus says, you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. You see, the prayer life is not something you show off to everyone else. It's in my spirit, Paul says. I am proclaiming the gospel and praying for you all the time. And he says, I'm giving it all. I'm devoted. And Jesus says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What is your Christian life about? Well, you could summarize it by saying, it's all about how you are as you kneel before God and pray to him. Or lay down and pray. Or stand up and pray. However you do it. That gets to the point of your Christian life. This is what matters most when we pray on behalf of others. 
Not that they know necessarily that we pray for them. It's, it's kind sometimes. I love it when you guys tell me that you pray for me. It encourages me. But more importantly is that God knows. That God hears our prayers. And he is our witness as we intercede for others. And notice how Paul finishes out the verse. To how unceasingly I make mention of you. He prayed for other Christians. He prayed for these Roman Christians. Some of which he'd never seen before. And he's praying for them unceasingly. Adioleptos in Greek. It speaks of how often he mentioned them in his prayers. In ancient times, this word was used in other literature for a lingering cough. That cough that's always there all day long. You're coughing and up at night coughing. Unceasingly coughing. Well, here, Paul's saying that he is unceasingly praying for them. This is how often he's talking about the time in which he prayed for them. Not just once a year. He's not saying, I thought about you last month. But it's unceasing. Not every second of the day, but he is praying for them every day. It's frequent. It's constant. It's always there in his prayers. When he prays, he mentions them, which means he has a prayer list. That means either mentally or written down somewhere. He has a prayer list and he's going through it, praying about all the churches that he's planted and all the churches he hasn't met yet, like the church in Rome and the church in Jerusalem. He knew knew them, didn't plant the church there, though. He's praying for them. He's praying for other Christians regularly, constantly. One of my seminary professors said about uh, praying unceasingly, he says analogous to a stove pilot light that remains on. And it's ready to leap into use for cooking, yet it's not always being used to cook all day. It's there. It's ready. Every moment Paul had a time to pray, he was praying. And every time he prayed, he mentioned to God the church in Rome. In a constant state of grabbing opportunities. We need to learn from Paul's example. Are we grabbing opportunities throughout our day? Are we pulling out our iPhones and looking at those? Getting on the internet, saying, of course I'll pray God later. And then later becomes after we've used up all our time on technology. And we're too tired to pray. The writer in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about scripture. In verse 164 he says, seven times a day I praise you. That's a type of prayer, praise. And seven times a day the writer of the psalm here is saying, I praise you. The prophet Daniel prayed three times a day, he says. No doubt he made mention of his people Israel every time, every day. Paul says he makes mention of them. He remembers them in his prayers. He had a prayer list and he prayed for them and whatever needs he knew they might have. Persecution, of course, might be one of them. They live in the capital city of the empire. And while persecution hasn't gotten as bad as it will get near the end of Paul's life, that's the one place that it's going to start. Always starts in Rome where the emperor, where the government is seated. Do we pray like this? That's, that's our application just from this verse. When it comes to intercession, are you praying on behalf of your church? Paul f- prayed for a church he hadn't even met. We know most of us here. We know each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray for each other. How can you pray for your church? Well, you can pray for your elders. That we would faithfully shepherd the flock by the scriptures, training up the body to do the work of ministry. Pray that your elders would remain faithful. That we would remain above reproach. Pray for your deacons to excel at at finding needs in the church where they can serve and help. And pray for your deacons to assist the elders by taking ministry burdens off of them. Pray for unity in the church. Pray for unity in this church. 
that we can all be unified around the essentials, around our statement of faith, and set aside small preferences and differences that no body of 200 people will perfectly agree on. Pray that our church would have a hunger for God's word. These are just things you need to add to your prayer list for this church. Pray that your church would have a hunger for God's word, that we would seek to live it out, that we would be doers of the word. Not just people filling our heads. Of course, you fill your head when you come here with the knowledge of Scripture. But we've got to be doers of the Word. Doers both when we're here together and when we go out and meet together or when we're by ourselves or wherever the Lord puts us. Let us be doers of the Word and pray for that. Pray for close discipling relationships to develop among the body. Your elders can't be close to every member like some of you can Pray that that would happen. Work on that yourself and pray that the doors would open for you to disciple somebody. Pray that our members would share the gospel with unbelievers even this week. Even this week. There's lots of unbelievers coming near us, coming into our homes or we're going there. Pray for opportunities for your church to share the gospel. Pray that we would prepare for any persecution. Any persecution that might result from sharing the gospel even this week, but long term. Pray for our missionaries that we are now contributing financial support and prayer support for. And pray that every member here would use their spiritual gifts in the church and give faithful support to the church's ministry. That's just one application. Pray on behalf of your church. Pray for your church. But also, we ought to pray and intercede on behalf of unbelievers as well. Now, Paul primarily is talking here about the believers in Rome. But we could extend this a bit and say, we need to intercede on behalf of unbelievers. We have unbelieving children until they're saved by God. They don't come out a Christian. They're going to be saved by God. He's going to grant them. He's going to call them and grant them repentance and faith. And we need to pray for that. God uses our prayers as the means to bring about his foreordained plan of salvation. God uses us. We're part of his plan. And there's examples all throughout church history of people praying and praying and praying. I think of uh, Augustine, the, the famous theologian of the early church, and his mother prayed for him for years. It wasn't until he was in his 30s that he got saved. There was another godly man that's often known in church history for prayer, George Mueller or Muller. George Mueller is how I say it. Best known for his large Christian orphanage in Bristol, England in the 1800s. He would not ask for money to be given. He would just pray that people would hear about it and send money to his orphanage. One time he writes in his autobiography about interceding on behalf of unbelievers. Listen to this. In November 1844, he says, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. Are we praying for five individual unbelievers? Just look at this example. He goes, I prayed every day without a single intermission whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. So a year and a half before the first person got saved that he was praying for. I thank God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, then the second was converted. I thank God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. The man to whom God and the riches of his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer 
And the selfsame hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals. He's saying, I've seen thousands of my prayers answered, but these have not been answered yet, and I'm still praying for them. It's been 36 years when he writes this for the conversion of these individuals, and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God. I pray on, he says, and look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. Look at that hope. They're not converted yet, but they will be, he says, because he's going to keep praying every day until he dies. Autumn and I prayed for 17 years for my son who got up last week and gave his testimony and got baptized. It's never too long to pray. Just keep praying regularly, making intercession for others, for both believers in your church and all the believers that you know, and for the unsaved that you know. Second point here that Paul gets to is his petition. He says, number two, we must petition God for our needs and godly desires. We learn from him here that we must petition God for our needs and godly desires. Now, often we think of our needs, but sometimes we have our basic needs met. But we have a godly desire. We would like to serve in this ministry. It's not an absolute need. It doesn't have to happen for us to survive. But it is a godly desire. It is a godly desire to join a godly church. It's a godly desire to serve. It's a godly desire to do a lot of things we want to do that line up with Scripture. So it's not just petitioning God for needs, but also godly desires to be fulfilled. Verse 10, always in my prayers. You see, he's already talked about how he's unceasingly praying for them. Now he's going to say, always in my prayers, making request. The verb here for making request means to ask for something pleadingly. He's not just saying, please, God, if, if you would like today. He's pleading with God. When you're in a close relationship with somebody and you really would, would like something, you ask in the right way. You plead like my kids do when they want something for Christmas, right? They plead, Dad, I need this. It's not really a need, but that's the way they plead. You gotta ask with urgency. That's what this word means. He asked with urgency, with the implication of a presumed need. Again, notice the mention of time. Always, always, always he's praying for them, and he's always praying for this need. What is it? If perhaps now at last, at last, he's been wanting to go see them for so long, perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted desperately to go and see the Christians there. He wanted to be with the church in Rome. He couldn't wait to get there. You know, sometimes Christians today will find any reason not to be around other believers. And Paul couldn't wait to travel across the Roman Empire. And it's going to mean him getting arrested. He doesn't know this, but he's going to get arrested in chains and be shipwrecked on the ship going there and be bitten by vipers and carried to Rome in chains and put under house arrest. But he will eventually get there. He was willing to go through all that to get to Rome. And sometimes it's hard for us to even want to come and see and be around the body of Christ. Paul wanted desperately. He says, if perhaps now at last, he's desired for some time to travel to see them. He's not going there to see the Roman architecture. Many of us would like to go see the historical buildings that are still there, the Roman Forum. Some people go there to see all the cathedrals, all the artwork, the guys who painted great works. No, Paul says, 
I just want to go see the church. I want to see Christians and be together with them. He didn't go to see the emperor. He didn't go to be close to the power of government. To get a a snapshot with the emperor at the time. That's not his purpose. He wants to be with the church. And he even phrases it like this. I may succeed. Literally in the Greek culture, this, this word meant to be led along a good road. That I might be led along a good road. It was metaphorically speaking that he would prosper. The King James Version says, by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey. Paul petitions God in prayer that he might be prosperous in getting to the church in Rome so he can minister to them. That's his reason. He's not going to play golf. They didn't have golf back then. But he's not going to just have fun. He's not going to just socialize, although he'll do some of that with him, of course. Of course. He's going to be with the church, God's people. Martin Luther said, the great reformer Martin Luther said about this verse, the apostle longed to see the believers at Rome. The same longing is found in every faithful shepherd who does not desire what the sheep possess. A lot of shepherds desire to take from their flock. Luther says he does not desire what the sheep possess, but seeks only the sheep themselves. And this desire is prompted solely by love. He wants to be around them. He's not going to beat up the sheep. He's not going to to wring some money out of them. He's going because he loves them. They're in Christ, he's in Christ, and he loves them. We need to petition like Paul did. I think of another man in church history named Hudson Taylor, a great missionary to China, one of the first missionaries to modern-day China. And he went and was often in prayer all the time for his needs to be met. And even before he went, he learned to pray like a faithful Christian. And one day he met a poor man on the street, and he gave his last coins so that this poor man could feed his wife and his dying baby. This meant that Hudson Taylor would not be able to buy food for himself at the end of the day. He himself would go hungry if he wasn't able to get money from somewhere else. But he didn't go and ask people for money. He just went home and he petitioned God, he says. I petitioned God to quickly repay what Hudson Taylor called a loan. He considered it loaning this money to God because he gave it to somebody who needed it. And he went home and petitioned God and he petitioned God. His prayers were answered the following day when he was opening an envelope and money fell out. He later recounted his reaction. He said, praise the Lord, 400% for 12 hours investment. That is a good investment. See, that's not prosperity theology. That's just truly going to God for your needs and then seeing what God will do. Well, let's look at this little verse here that he mentions in verse 10. This little phrase, by the will of God. So important when we pray. When we pray for our requests, they need to be by the will of God. That's part of the petition. And Paul wanted to see the Romans and be with them, yet he knew it was ultimately not up to him, but up to God to open doors. It was up to God to provide the way. It was up to God to clear the path. He says, again, near the end of the book, in Romans 15, 32, he says, So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. His plans are dependent on God's will, not his own will. It's, it's God's will. It's God's plan. It's God's providence. He resigns himself completely to the will of God in this matter. This is the point of by the will of God. 
The emphasis rests upon the providential will of God. God is sovereign over all things. And if we believe it, then we will pray according to his will. And we better make sure it is according to his will. And the way we know that is by knowing our Bibles. It's not a selfish desire. It's not something that just benefits us for our sake, but no one else. It's a desire to glorify God. And we know that because we've read the scriptures. We don't have to wonder if it is a godly desire. Paul knew that he could do everything in his own power to try and get to Rome and to see the church there. But if God doesn't want it to happen, it will not happen. It will not happen. And it doesn't mean his desire was wrong if it doesn't happen. We're not God. We can't decide when these things will occur. Now He does eventually get there. We know that. But Paul said it's the will of God. Praying in the will of God. It's basically the same thing if you understand the idea of praying in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is not this little magical formula you stick on the end of your prayer. To pray in Jesus' name means that you're praying according to the way Jesus would want you to pray. And we know that because in John 16, 23, he says it very clearly. Go over there to John 16, 23. And I want you to see what it means to pray in the will of God, to pray in Jesus' name. In John 16, 23, he's talking about when the Spirit comes. When Jesus has gone and the Holy Spirit comes in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Praying in God's will is to ask something in Jesus' name. That is always how Jesus prayed. You remember in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's the Father's will that Jesus was concerned about. It's the Father's will. And we need to understand what it means to say, I pray this in Jesus' name. It means it's according to the will of God. It's according to the best of our knowledge. It lines up with Scripture. It lines up with a godly desire or a godly need. A true need that's described in Scripture. Well, that brings up the issue. If God is sovereign, then why is Paul even praying? If God has planned all things and set all things that will happen already in his mind before they ever happen, then why does Paul pray? Why should we pray? What's the point of prayer? Does it really even make a difference? We can't change God's mind. We know the doctrine of God teaches that. God's not changing. He doesn't flip-flop back and forth like so many of our politicians. He doesn't do that. It's God. He's immortal. He's never changing. He's not like man that he would change his mind. So why do we pray? That's an important theological question. Is prayer unnecessary? You see, to get around this, a lot of people say, well, God doesn't know the future. God doesn't plan all things. Therefore, we have to pray to change his mind. Well, prayer itself, think about this. Prayer itself has been ordained by God. If he's ordained all things and prayer is a thing, then God has ordained it, including your prayers. Now, that's no excuse to say, well, God's ordained that I not pray very much. That's an excuse. It doesn't work with God. It's like saying, well, God's ordained that I don't evangelize very much when he's told us clearly in Scripture to evangelize and he told us to pray. Prayer has been ordained by God as a means to accomplish his will. It's just like evangelism. 
God doesn't show up in bodily form and walk up to somebody and tell them the gospel. He tells us to do it. He's in us. Christ is in us. The Spirit is in us as we do it. He gives the power and the strength to do it. But ultimately, we are the one doing it. And it's the same with prayer. God saves people. He's the one who changes hearts. But we take the gospel to them. God has ordained all things. But many of those things happen because we pray. And God has ordained that too. We know this from Scripture. If we go to 2 Kings chapter 20, 2 Kings in the Old Testament uh, tells us something very interesting. And you might think, well, well, God is changing his mind here. God has changed his mind on what he wants to do, but that can't work because Scripture tells us he doesn't change his mind. So that means all things that happen in this passage right here have already been foreordained. 2 Kings 20. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah, the prophet, the Isaiah that wrote the book Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord God, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake. Now Hezekiah was truly going to die. If he had not prayed, he would have died. But he lived because he prayed. Well, how does that work? You don't have to understand. You have to believe the scriptures. And then put the things in the place that we know we can see in the scriptures. And how God works it out, that's God's prerogative. But it says he's planned all things. And he even planned for Hezekiah and for ordain and decreed that Hezekiah would indeed repent and turn to him. We'll see this later in Romans. In Romans 9.18, let's go and look there. You'll see clearly what God says about salvation. Paul says it. It's the word of God, though. Romans 9.18, what does he say about salvation? So then he has mercy. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So it's all up to God, right? We're not to do anything? Is that what the text is saying? Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Same guy writing the same letter just a few verses later. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their what? Salvation. But it's God who decides. Well, Paul says, I pray for them. How does that work? Charles Spurgeon said, we have a responsibility and God is sovereign. And all I can see is two railroad tracks just running into the distance. I can't see where they meet. I can't always put it together. But it's true. And that's what the Bible says. It's God who decides. It's God who chooses. It's God who has mercy and hardens. But we are called to do what we're called to do. And we are the means by which God accomplishes his will. 
How does God work through our prayers? Well, the prayers are the means that he's given us. How does God work through us to save others? God saves them, but it's through our evangelism. What about our responsibility? Don't worry. Paul's going to get all to our responsibility in Romans 1 and chapter 2. And when we're done with Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3, you'll know about our responsibility and how we are responsible for our own sin. Now, here's the most important thing we need to remember about God's will in prayer. If it's according to God's will, he will answer it in his own time. If it's according to God's will, he will answer it in his own time. John Stott said, this is a a commentator from the 1900s. He said, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending his will to ours. But it's the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. God loves us so much that he lets us be a part of his plan. That he, that he makes us, he writes us into the story. And if it's according to God's will, he will answer it. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. People say, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Unbelievers will say, God doesn't answer my prayers. I'm not going to believe in him. But God promises to answer his people's prayers. Jesus said, this is the confidence that we have before him because we're in Christ. He does answer our prayers. Sometimes his answer is no. That's an answer. Sometimes his answer is no. And many times that's because our prayer does not line up with the will of God. If it does line up with the will of God, sometimes it's yes. And we see that often quickly. Sometimes it takes years, like in the story of George Mueller. And sometimes the answer is wait. Not verbal, not that you hear an answer from God. But you know over the years, it's wait. And then you see that prayer request fulfilled. And it's not even the way that you thought it would happen. But it happened that way because God is sovereign. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you see that Over and over and over. Look at James chapter 1. James 1. And he talks about prayer here. And how we ought to ask God for wisdom. We ought to pray to God for wisdom. Particularly in times of trial and tribulation. Because he said, consider it all joy. And verse 2, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom. Not to be the smartest person in the world, but if any of you lacks wisdom on just how to live the Christian life, how to pray to God, how to get through trials, how to have joy in trials, let him ask of God. That's prayer. Who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. God will answer our prayers. Not in our time, but in his time. He knows what's best. But this person, James says, must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We've got to pray to God, and we've got to have faith. You saw George Mueller said, they will be saved. He wasn't telling God what to do. He had confidence that it would happen. And if it didn't, then of course, that's God's sovereignty. But he thought that it would. So how do we apply this teaching here on petition? Well, we've got to go to God regularly in our prayers. Recently, someone told me that they didn't see 
how a certain problem would ever come about, would ever have a resolution, that there would ever be reconciliation in that situation. And I agreed at first, and I thought, no, prayer. Prayer. God can do anything. God can fix any problem. God can do anything. Do we go to God with our needs every day? Do we go to God first in the morning before we even get busy? Do we go to God again at night and ask Him and petition Him? He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear our needs. Yeah, there's a lot of talk these days about how people don't want to work and they don't want to get up and do anything. And there should be a drive for Christians to to get up and get going and get things done and be independent in a sense. But ultimately, we're dependent on God. Ultimately, we're dependent on God. On God, and God wants us to acknowledge that, confess that, and continually pray to Him. I think the second application here for petition is that we need to love being with other Christians in this body. We need to love it. Paul wanted to be with the Romans, he wanted to be there in Rome, he longed to be with them, he loved them. Didn't even know most of them, and he wanted to be there. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We've got to love to be together. That's why home groups are so important. You get around a smaller group of people here that you can get to know, that you can pray for, that you can intercede for, that you can love. We have a smaller teaching, Bible studies and whatnot, where there's opportunities to get to know people before and afterwards. And on Sunday morning, Just grab somebody you don't know and ask how you can pray for them. Ask how you can pray for them. We've got to petition for ourselves and we've got to intercede for others. And we've got to love the body. We've got to love being around the body. and love the body so much we're willing to pray for them. You pray for those that you love, Lord willing. So let's ask God now for help in that as we pray for others and pray for ourselves. Lord God, Holy Father, you are good and sovereign. You know all things. You know what is best for us. We don't know what's best, Lord, but you do. And you're sovereign. If we believe that you're sovereign, we ought to pray like that and we ought to live like that and trust you in all things. You didn't give us power to rule the world. That's what you do. And so we trust in you and we ask that you would help to remind us regularly to pray, to take our petitions before you. Lord, don't let us run away. Don't let us hide. Don't let us run off into sin or get bitter. We need to come to you in our prayers. You provide all that we need, and you can answer prayers for others as well. We ask that you would do this according to your will. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.